Thanks, guys. Good afternoon. I want to start off by asking, if you had to pick, would you say that you are complacent or restless? Where on the, on the spectrum do you fall? If you had to pick, how many, let's do a little quick rate of complacent. Would you tend to be more complacent or more restless? Who's restless? All right. Welcome, church. Maybe some of you are not quite sure. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of us struggle with both, even, especially in the modern world where the modern technology almost forces us to be restless so much. We're always looking for the next thing. We're always waiting for the new device. And then we crash into a time of complacency um, once we, we need to binge watch something or whatever it may be. But I wanted just to, to start thinking about that because this passage actually is going to answer it in a little bit of a different way than you may expect. We're not going to end by just saying, rest in Christ. And if you're restless, maybe that's good news because maybe you're sick of hearing that and it's very hard and seems uh, impractical. But we're going to look a little bit differently at what the letter of Hebrews is trying to, to teach us, what God wants us to know about the Sabbath rest, both the day today, but also what he means more broadly about his rest. And so I think you're going to find an answer here that is different, but also uh, relates to our life all throughout the week, our full life in Christ uh, that wants to challenge both our complacency and our restlessness. Let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we have come and you have set us free. We have heard the word of your gospel. We have stood in worship and knelt in confession. And Lord, we ask now that you would speak to us by your word. We thank you for it, that you have not left us blind and deaf. You have not left us groping in the darkness toward who you are and who you call us to be, but that you have given us your words. We pray that your spirit would uh, make it come alive, that your spirit would speak to us, um, and we give you all honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're coming into the the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews, but it's also in the middle of a chunk talking about the rest of God and the the Sabbath rest of God and what does that mean, and comparing the Old Testament figures uh, to Jesus. And the book of Hebrews in general is often accentuating the, the excellency and the supremacy of Christ compared to the Old Testament prophets, compared to angels, compared to Moses, and then in this passage, even Joshua. But it starts in chapter 4 by saying, let us fear. And the English kind of loses that. The first word should be, let us fear. He's emphasizing the fear. They are in danger of something very serious. And he starts off by saying, let us fear. But what are we supposed to fear? We're supposed to fear that in an important way, we forget when we are. Not where we are, but when we are. The folks he's writing to, he thinks, are forgetting when they are in redemptive history. And he compares this generation that we find ourselves also in. This generation, the church, the New Covenant church, this church he's comparing to the generation in the wilderness. And that's what he's doing when he talks about today. How he keeps emphasizing it, 
kind of sounds awkward to our ears when he says today, today, when he's quoting Psalm 95. But he keeps emphasizing this because there's a comparison between the today being the present and then also the promised land being the future. So those are the two main things that he wants to, uh, he wants to hit home for his congregation that they don't realize when they are in relation to those two things. All right, so we're going to look at those two things and then the implications of it. So when we look at the comparison between the wilderness generation, what they had um, heard, it says they had heard the good news preached to them. They had been evangelized, literally, it says in verse 2. He's talking about when Caleb and Joshua, most likely, uh, came back from looking at the promised land and had told them that we can go into the promised land now, even though the enemies look fierce and strong and mighty. We have a great God who's going to bring us into the promised land. But they are in between one great moment of salvation and the promised land. And that's the today that he is telling us we are in as well. We are in between one great act of salvation and the future promised land. Now, what does he mean by that? So, the Old Testament is very clear for the wilderness generation. They have just come through the greatest act in Old Testament history, the Exodus. The salvation from Egypt. He has heard the cries of his people, and he has brought them out from slavery through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea on their way to the Promised Land. And that is celebrated all throughout the Old Testament. That is what defines Israel. That, that is even what defines God. God will over and over say, I am the Lord your God who saved you out of Egypt. That's who he is. That's who you are. You are the people who have been saved out of Egypt. So if you are in the present today, he's saying you are those people who have been saved out of Egypt, just like they were. But our Egypt was even more significant. And our Jesus, our new Moses, is even better. Because we have been saved out of Egypt if we are in Christ. We have been saved out of the Egypt of sin and slavery and death. At the end of chapter 2, he very explicitly references the lifelong slavery that we were under, under the fear of death, that Jesus has brought us out of. Now, have you, do you think of the Christian life that way? That you had, there has been a change in you? That you have become a new sort of person and have left an old way? Over and over, we're told we are baptized into his death and raised to newness of life. We have gone through the judgment waters. If you were at our Sunday school looking at what baptism meant, we have gone through this judgment ordeal, but it wasn't just the judgment of physical enemies like Egyptian chariots. It was the spiritual enemies, the real enemies of our soul and of God, sin and death. But we have, if you are in Christ, you have passed through that. And he's writing here to Christians. And if you're not in Christ, you're not sure who Jesus is, imagine what a life would be like if you could look back and say, I was under the slavery of sin, but am no longer. That is amazing. There's triumph all over the New Testament, and we don't want to diminish that. And so he says, you guys are in a similar situation. Just as the wilderness generation, they no longer have to fear the Egyptians. 
They feared him when they were in slavery. They feared him when they came up to the Red Sea. But once they crossed, they didn't have to fear the Egyptians. So stop and ask for a second how often you live and act and and think as if you're still in Egypt. Because that's one way to, to misread when we are. We act as if we're still in Egypt. We act as if whatever master or lord or idol or sin is still over our life. We act as if we are being told by that idol, you need to make more bricks with less straw. That's going to be your life. That's going to be your salvation. What is that for you? How do you forget that you have been brought out of that slavery? Romans 7 compares this bringing out, the looking back. He compares it to you have your old spouse has died. Stop acting as if you're still married to them. The old spouse being the law that condemned. Once sin, what sin corrupted us, that law condemned us. But we're no longer married to that spouse. But if you struggle, think about the sin that you struggle with and, and give it a, a name and an embodiment. That's the thing that you are acting still enslaves you. Now, of course, a Christian still struggles with sin. We're going to talk about that. But there's a fundamental difference between a Christian who struggles with sin and someone who lives in sin, someone who's enslaved by it, defines their character and identity. And as, as, as we act and as we fall prey to all sorts of sin in our life, we're acting as if we're still enslaved. Maybe it's greed. And so money or what money can get you is your master. Maybe it's people-pleasing and what other people think of you is still your master. You're forgetting that you've been brought out of those idols. They forget that the thesis of Hebrews is not true, that Jesus has been raised and is the ascended king of creation. Over and over, that's what we're brought to. The focus in Hebrews is the ascension, the fact that he is exalted. And so if we go back into Egypt, we're acting as if he's no longer king. We're we're acting as if Pharaoh is king, or money is king, or whatever it is. Fill it in. What is the, the king that you still act as if he's in charge? Because he's not. And he doesn't have to be in your life. Don't forget when you are. So we can forget the past, and the wilderness generation was very often good at that. If you've ever read the stories of the Old Testament, one chapter later, it doesn't take very long, after celebrating the deliverance from Egypt, they're complaining, saying that they want to go back to Egypt, they don't like the food God has provided, and they fear for their own lives. So they forgot the past, they forgot how bad sin was, they forgot how bad slavery was and they want to go back. But the more uh, heavily emphasized point here is not that the Hebrews have forgotten the past or that we have forgotten the past. It's that we forget the future and how it ties to the past. So if you forget about when you are, where you are in in redemptive history, yeah, we struggle with forgetting the past, but we're going to talk more about forgetting the future. Because here, when it says rest... When it says rest 
over and over and over, in this passage, it's talking about the future rest. God's rest that we are on our way to. So you are that generation that, that is being spoken to just like they were that says, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear, God, do not harden your hearts, because you are on the way to the promised land. And that's what I want to look at. So the future. What is he talking about when he says rest over and over? Well, he makes a, a pretty quick argument there. Um, let me just read it again for you. Of why things are still, why the rest is still in the future. In verse 8, he says, For if Joshua had given them rest, by the way, Joshua in the Greek is Jesus, which was really confusing at first, at first read, but um, surely that's not an accident, right? So if you were reading in the original Greek, it says Jesus had given them rest, but he's Joshua, the first Jesus, if you will, and then we have a greater Jesus. But So if Joshua, back in the Old Testament, had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And so he is packing a very quick argument there. He says, all right, so Joshua had talked about rest when he said we're going to the promised land and then we're going to rest from our enemies. But then we have Psalm 95, which is what he's quoting over and over. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, they shall not enter my rest. He says, guys, Psalm 95, that's written hundreds of years after Joshua, and there's still a chance to enter the rest, so the rest must be future. You see that sort of logic? He's saying, we know Joshua had said to en- that they're going to enter rest. They didn't really, because why would the psalmist say, they're not gonna, you're not going to enter my rest, if he's speaking much later? So it's a quick argument that also is just very obvious throughout the Old Testament, because the final rest that Israel was supposed to have never gets accomplished. It gets accomplished very quickly. In David's reign, he had ultimate rest from his enemies, But that lasts about two chapters until he sleeps with Bathsheba and everything starts going downhill. So, the book of Hebrews is making this argument. There is a future rest. There is an opportunity that still stands for the people of God. And then he connects it both to, in pretty amazing ways, he connects it to God's rest all the way back in Genesis 2. And we're going to see what this has to do with Jesus and redemption. So, We're going to do a quick sort of biblical theology of what he means by rest and Sabbath rest. And then we're going to look at Jesus. But this is the only point in all the New Testament where Genesis 2 is quoted in this way. So, a reminder. At the end of the first six days of creation, this first creation account, we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So, we have there, especially the way Hebrews interprets it, God is at rest. But Hebrews argues that there is some sort of access that the people of God want and are are given an opportunity to throughout redemptive history. And it's that same rest that God had way back in creation. The rest that they were supposed to have, that they had momentarily in Genesis 2, was going to be the rest of the promised land, was going to be the rest of Israel. Eden was supposed to 
spread through the temple of God to the rest of national Israel. And so he's talking about this rest was offered to them. And they were supposed to taste it and look forward to it by their observance of the Sabbath. And so um, in Exodus 20, when we're given the Ten Commandments, Fourth Commandment, keep the Sabbath holy because God rested on the Sabbath day. Do all your works in the sixth God re- and rest on the seventh just like God did. So the first uh, time we get the Ten Commandments, that's how it's put. But then something really interesting starts happening in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy and later, don't worry, this is going to come full circle. Deuteronomy and later in, repeats the Ten Commandments, but after it repeats the Fourth Commandment about keeping the Sabbath, it says, For you shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What the heck does the being a slave in Egypt have to do with keeping the Sabbath day? Think about that. Why would he say, keep the Sabbath day holy? Because you were a slave in Egypt. Well, as you, as you think about that, let me go to another place. The Sabbath gets connected to other things as well. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which Jews still celebrate today. This major Day of Atonement also is connected to the Sabbath. For on this day, this is Leviticus 16, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you. And you shall afflict yourselves, or or fast, it is a statute forever. Why would the Day of Atonement be described as a Sabbath of solemn rest? It then gets mentioned later on as there's going to be a Sabbath year. One out of seven years was supposed to be a Sabbath year where you forgive the debts of those who are indebted to you and you let prisoners go free. And then you have a Sabbath of all Sabbaths. You have the Jubilee year, which is supposed to be after 49 years. There's supposed to be a 50th year, which is like... We're told what it is, but we don't have any account of it, anyone actually doing it. I don't think Israel ever followed through on this one. Um, almost as if it was, it was too good, uh, too hard to do. But that too is described as a Sabbath of solemn rest. All right. So, if you're wondering why, what does this have to do with creation, it's because he's very explicitly tying creation and redemption together. That creation is not only God's magnificent power in speaking everything into existence. It's also redeeming the chaos and the disorder into God's ordered world. And redemption is being tied into a new creation. So they they turn into almost synonyms because the Exodus gets described not only as a redeeming from slavery, but you are being made into a new people of God a new people of God. And so, you have in the New Testament, over and over, we are described as a new creation. That you have been redeemed, and the redemption is so deep and powerful, it is as if you have received a new life. Now, what does that have to do with God's rest? God's rest that began in in, uh, Genesis 2. And what does that that have to do with our passage? Well, What's going on with God's rest is that that is where God's kingdom is full. That is where he is most 
fully at reign. That is where he is the Savior. And Jesus is there. Now, if we ask when we are, I also want to ask, when is Jesus? I realize it sounds stupid too, but don't worry. It's a very significant question to ask, when is Jesus? I don't know the physics behind time travel and all that, so I won't attempt to think it out that way. But the way that the New Testament talks about Jesus as our forerunner, as the one who has gone through the other end of death and is living a resurrected bodily life, it's as if he is in the future, new heaven and new earth, where God's Sabbath rest is in full. I don't think he's literally in the future, but I think he's, he is experiencing life the way the people of God will experience it in the future. Because he has been sanctified and set apart, he says in John 17, and we will be sanctified and set apart to experience God's Sabbath rest as well. Okay, so, let me try to, to, to bring it full circle as far as why it's so important that when we read this passage, we see that the promised rest is the future. And you may have been around some uh, Christian circles where uh, there's an assumption that the Sabbath now for a Christian is basically now every day is the Sabbath because Christ came and we rest all the time in God. And there's, there's definitely truth to that. It's just not in this passage. So it's, it's perfectly fine to talk about we can rest by faith in Christ because his work is finished. And we'll talk about that in a second as well. But Hebrews 4 is all focused on the future. We are geared and aligned to the future. The promised land is in the future. The promised rest is in the future. Therefore, we should strive. Therefore, we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Therefore, we should persevere. And it makes so much sense in the context of Hebrews because his point is you guys have received Christ. You guys have become, you've largely, many of them have come out of Judaism and have received Christ and you share in Christ if you persevere to the end. And so keep looking at the future. Keep looking at the future. And how is he telling us to do that? Well, not only do we have a, a Jesus who is greater than Moses, we have a preacher who is greater than Joshua in Jesus. He tells us, get ready, keep the Sabbath. That's how we're supposed to do it. Doesn't that sound so exciting? Keep the Sabbath. All right, the way he does that, in verse 9, let me remind you what he says. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So throughout this passage, he says over and over, there's rest, God rested, um, we're going to look for the rest that is to come. But for some reason in verse 9, he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is a word that it seems like he invented out of the the Greek Old Testament that isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament and, and nobody before him, the writer of Hebrews, because it has to do with Sabbath keeping. And it has to do with Sabbath feasting and Sabbath celebration. So verse 9 actually is meant to say, there remains a Sabbath keeping 
for the people of God. Why would that be important for his argument? Because we're in the same place as they were. We're in the same place as they were as far as what is future. What is future was the promised land, the promised rest. It is for us. So why would the fourth commandment be different? Why would the fourth commandment be different? For his argument, he's saying there's not going to be a lot of difference. There's not going to be a lot of difference. It's still future, and so we should try to keep it. He's trying to say more than just there's rest for the people of God, which is true. He's saying there remains this Sabbath keeping. And before you think this is, this is sort of lame to keep the Sabbath, realize what is being said with the Sabbath. That it's the fourth commandment, first of all. Of all the things he tells us to do, he puts it at number four. Not that there's a certain hierarchy, but there's something to that. But did you catch uh, the quote that was sort of the meditation that was given uh, on the slide in your worship guide? This is from um, a theologian named Richard Gaffin. The weekly Sabbath is not just God's provision so that we might have time to worship him, although it's certainly that. The rest itself has positive meaning. The Lord's Day is about worship because it is, first of all, about the gospel. It is a sign a witness both to the church and to the watching world that you are not your own. We are depending on God, not on ourselves, to provide for us. It is a sign that we do not trust in ourselves and our own efforts. As fallen sons and daughters of Adam, we trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ, the last Adam. Now if you think about what, we were, um, what I was saying earlier of how creation is tied to redemption, the Sabbath becomes a pointer to who we are. What I mean by that is, I hate to break it to you, but you're wasting a lot of time here if you're just trying to have the most efficient, most economic, competitive life. It's sort of a waste of time in that sense. But if we do observe the Sabbath in this way, we are saying to the world, I am looking to God's full reign. I am taking a, a stamp of identity in who I, who I am by saying none of the other gods in the world are going to define my week and my time. No one else has a right to do that except from the king alone, Christ Jesus. No one else has a right to own you, not even your own self and your own pleasure, Not even the fact that it is a beautiful day out today. Not even that should define who you are and what you do. God alone should. It's an amazing statement to say, I will come and point to the future rest. And so the rest we have now is a type of first fruits of the future. The rest we have now, yeah, there is a difference in observing the fourth commandment in in ways of like the ceremonial laws that they would have instituted when it meant, you know, you can't turn on a light and you can't do certain types of work. No, no, we're not bound to the ceremonial law that is clearly ceased in Christ. But the same pointer, the same sign still stands. And that is such good news because we get to look to the future. That's where we're going. That's where our rest and our fullest experience of the king is going to be. It's going to be in the future. So when he says strive, don't harden your hearts, 
lest there be someone who, among you who doesn't believe or disobeys. He's saying strive to the future. That's where you're going to be most who you are. That's where you're going to be most with Christ. Now that should actually strike us as very good news. Because you're not made for this. You should be unsatisfied with the world as it is now. You should be very unsatisfied with the world as it is. And I would, I would argue that if we're not very satisfied, if focusing on the future seems, seems like bad news or seems, um, I don't know, it seems bad in any way, it's probably because we have so much comfort and goodness now. But as Jesus says, if you are comforted now, you have received your reward. Meaning, you don't have anything to look forward to in the future. But if we realize that we are actually meant for so much more, because God has, is far from done with his creation, that he's going to be moving us on this journey until the new heavens and the new earth, we can take the pressure off this world. We can take the pressure off all the constant demands and needs that we have to be satisfied, or all the demands that the idols and masters make of us, because that's not what is real life. Those aren't the real kings of the world. And so we're, we're told to strive, but it's a, it's a strive to rest sort of striving. Now, that may be annoying for you to hear because it sounds like it doesn't make any sense, but notice why. It's a strive to the rest that God has prepared because of Christ. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but it's pretty amazing that at the resurrection of Christ, what happens in the earliest churches, even the the Jewish communities start worshiping on the first day of the week because now they look forward and their week starts with the work that Christ has done. So he's looking forward. Instead of doing work now, we're going to wait to see if God reigns. There's something really fascinating that happens in the Gospel of John. Under, amid some dispute over the Sabbath, which comes up a lot in the Gospels, right? Jesus says in John 5, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And he's talking about that on the Sabbath. Why would he say that on the Sabbath? On the Gospel of John, do you know what Jesus says on the cross? His final words? He says, it is finished. He says, it is finished. And John goes out of his way in the next verse to emphasize the Sabbath. Why would he do that? It is finished. The work, the real work is finished because of what Christ has done. And so our life is not this uncertain of maybe the Messiah will come, maybe God will reign as king as it was before Christ, and so the Sabbath is at the end of the week. Our Sabbath is at the beginning of the week because now we start every day, or we start every week from the Lord's day because we've been raised in newness of life. Know when you are. You are after the work of Christ. Praise God. Christ has come, look to the future. Don't be satisfied with this. Don't think that this is all we have. Don't forget that Jesus has ascended 
and reigns, but look to the future. Jesus is in our future, if you will. He's a half step ahead of us. We have been raised spiritually. He has been raised bodily. And so if you go back to that original question, are you more complacent or are you more restless? Well, really, neither of them are, are, are Christian in, in the ultimate sense. But there's also a point in which a Christian should have both. I would probably use better words, like Paul uses contentment. But then he also uses, I worked harder than everyone else. And he says, I have peace and all understanding, but I have constant anxiety over the churches that I'm taking care of. What does this mean? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what we think the future is going to be. To some of you, when you hear, think about the future, especially if you've spent any time across the street on Yale's campus, the future seems absolutely daunting and overwhelming. The future seems like I've got to get all the right decisions in line, There are sophomores I know who are worried about their junior summer internship because what the junior summer internship does is define what job you take after your senior year and what what job you take after your senior year is going to define who you are after that. So the future for them is terrible news because all they do is get more and more anxious about it and that's the gospel that's often being preached um, is to you're going to be defined by those decisions. But here... For a Christian, what is the future? The future has already been decided by Christ. Do you get that? The future has already been decided by Christ. Just like Israel had already been saved out of Egypt, there wasn't a question of them going back into slavery. Jesus has already gone to the future, and he is our forerunner. And over and over, Hebrews will simply say, fix your eyes on him. He's the one who reigns, He's the one who is at rest. Those who access it will be at rest. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. And so we should have that first fruits of the rest. But it has to only be a first fruit. Don't be be sad. Have you seen the sin that is among us and among the world? This can't be it. Don't just look to the present. Our hope is in the future. When Christ will reign by sight in all the world. That's what God wants to say to you now. We don't think that much about the future, eternal future especially. We don't think about the Sabbath. But that's where we're all going. And that's what Christ came to do. It's to satisfy all the demands that were weighing us down, all those things we were enslaved to, he came to free us from. Even death itself. So stop being complacent unless you forget that there is much more to be had, that there is a fight worth fighting. Complacency is not Christian. Because you forget that you're still on a path to the future, but also stop being restless. Because Jesus has already defined the future. He's already said, I mean, even enjoying the rest of the Sabbath now, is to say, he has accomplished it. He is Lord. They're both out of a type of unbelief. So we come to this table which perfectly defines when we are. I mean, this table, we don't just do this when it works out nicely for the end of a sermon and, and 
makes sense to what, to what the preacher has been talking about. We do this every week because this is who we are and this is when we are, meaning Jesus has died and been raised and we celebrate it until he comes again. We're defined by his death and resurrection and we feast on him now at the table. So let's prepare our hearts to do that, to come to him, our King.